Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Mary Califf, and I'm once again filling in for Tim while he is out sick. And can I say how thankful I am to have you here, Mary? Oh, thank you, Kurt. It's good to be here. <laughs> and today's interview was fantastic, partly because a, you were here, um, but also partly because we had a fantastic guest, Charlotte Fox Weber. Charlotte is a psychotherapist and writer. She co-founded Examine Life and was the founding head of the School of Life Psychotherapy. And we're talking with her today about her book, which is called Tell Me What You Want. Yeah, it's a beautifully written book that presented ideas in a manner that made them instantly relatable and real, at least to me. Uh, the way that she writes is absolutely fantastic. And she does this with a series of composites of actual therapy sessions that just dragged me into the into the content. Mm -hmm. It was really fascinating. Really, really good. Yeah, she wrote a lot of stories in the book. They were very relatable. And when we talked to her, we covered a lot of ground. And so should we just get going, Kurt? Uh, agreed. I think so. And uh, before we get going, though, if you like this episode, please share it and let us know. We want to make sure that we have a conversation with you, the members of our grooving community. And so with that, we invite you to sit back with a fine glass of desire and listen to our conversation with Charlotte Fox Weber. Charlotte Fox Weber, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Hello. Hi. We are so happy to have you here. All right, we're going to start with a speed round. Mary's going to start. Yeah, let's kick off. So I know you're uh, an American Brit, and so this might be a contentious question, but do you prefer tea or coffee? Coffee. Oh, still an American then. <laughs> <laughs> there was no hesitation at all in that answer. That was fantastic. Well, for our listeners, Charlotte lives in London right now and infamously uh, Brits drink a cup of tea all the time, but you haven't been converted to the to the good old British cup of tea? I, I like tea in a decorative way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So would you prefer to take a break by the ocean or in the mountains? By the ocean. Mm. Yeah, I like both, but it's a, you know, it depends on the time of year, I think. So for me, preferably mountains and ocean together. Ooh, mm. there you go. There's a few places around the world that you can do that. Yes. Third question Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite actor or favorite musician? I think I'd prefer to have dinner with my favorite musician, although most of my favorite musicians are dead. <laughs> we we have the magical ability to pull them back from and who would that be? Do you have a do you have a one or two that you would go like these would be great? I think probably Nina Simone or Louis oh. Armstrong. Oh my gosh. Mm. Oh, Tim is gonna be really mad that he missed this. Those yeah. are two of two of his favorites that he is uh he would talk to Nina Simone. It's just I, I didn't know much about her, and then I saw a play on her, and I just got fascinated. It's amazing. She's amazing. So, all right, last speed round question: Is it difficult for us to articulate our wants and desires? Yes. If, if I'm giving a very quick answer, <laughs> but 
it's also possible. It is also possible. And so we are here and we're going to be talking to you today about your new book. It's titled in the U.S. as Tell Me What You Want. Um, but tell us a little bit more about why, A, it's difficult, but how we can overcome it and what this book is about. I think a lot of our difficulties with desire come from how we're socialized. And as soon as we learn language, we go around desire. So a toddler mm -hmm. says, I want milk, but it's not cute after a certain age, probably four. <laughs> and we start saying, I would like milk or could I please have milk? And we become circumspect and we start to hide certain desires that are shameful or seem inappropriate. So we begin to hide and perform and, and sometimes pretend. And we get very confused and indirect in communicating what we want. I, I find that really fascinating because this idea that 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 socialization and what you talk about is really true. You think about that. It's really cute when a one, two year old comes, I want milk, I want this. And you kind of go, oh, that's great. But by the time they're four or five, that's like, no, you, you correct them. You go, can I please have some milk? Can I please get something? And so it's an interesting element of what we're teaching our kids about their their own desires and how to ask for and how to talk about it. But uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the book itself and what you're hoping people get out of the book? Yes. Yeah, so the book is about facing our true desires as dark and twisted as some of them may be and often are because mm. we don't always have to act on our desire, but it's incredibly interesting and, and life enhancing when we face ourselves without flinching and consider what is underneath the way we're behaving or the way we feel obstructed. So very often it's frustration that shows up more readily than desire. And, and people in therapy are often frustrated by something in their life, frustrated, disappointed, blocked. And mm. behind that block, there's a really interesting story of desire. And I found in my work that people want to unburden themselves. They want, they want permission to explore whatever it is they truly want, even if it's not possible, even if what they want is to be younger or to have immortality or to murder someone or have sex with someone obscene. It's, it's emotionally liberating to be able to explore whatever it is you may, you may secretly want. Mm. A lot of my story began in my own therapy, which I started when I was six years old, actually, which sounds very shocking in England, especially. <laughs> but in America, it might, it might not be that unusual in certain places. But I, I went to therapy because I'd had heart surgery when I was four and a half, and I had really bad death anxiety. Mm. I was sent to therapy, and it felt like jail. And I, I felt trapped. Mm -hmm. I felt judged. And I, I kept waiting for this man to ask me what I wanted from the process. And he never asked. And mm -hmm. in all of the years since, I've had lots of therapy and not been asked that question. So I think my own impatience and frustration with not being asked prompted me to just start asking the question because as obvious as it sounds it it's something we forget to do and we can we can spend years in therapy 
looking at problems, looking at issues without asking those simple questions about what we want from situations. Mm, That's a great story uh, that you don't actually talk about in the book. So thank you for sharing that. You, you do talk in the book about curiosity and how being deeply curious is a key trait for being a therapist. And you have some beautiful phrases in the book. You, you write so eloquently. And one of them was this lovely sentence that you said, the shared curiosity of a great therapy session can be the key that turns in the lock and opens the door to new insights. I think that's a lovely way of describing it. So how important is curiosity on both sides of the relationship in therapy? And, and are you unlocking it in the, in, the, in the person you're talking to as well? I think curiosity is a life force and it engages us. It galvanizes us. It's inspiring. It gets us to pay attention. And it, it's also really respectful. And I think respect has that curiosity when you think about any respectful relationship you have in your life, being interested in finding out more. So part of my restlessness from when I've had therapy is if I feel like the therapist isn't isn't that interested in discovering my inner world, it, it's sort of insulting or not sort yeah. of, mm. it's deeply <laughs> insulting. So I think that asking ourselves those questions is also a way of having self-respect. Mm. It's it's interesting. We've had lots of different people on the show. And one of the things that continually comes up, and I'm remembering Kwame Christian, who is a, he's a negotiator and talks about a variety of different things, but he talks about this concept called compassionate curiosity when you're trying to to work with other people and just really having this curiosity, but also this compassion for the other person. And I'm wondering if there's any sense of that in the therapy kind of world that you work in. I I think compassion is incredibly important. I think I would say encouragement is probably more what I aim for, just encouraging curiosity, like with that sense of possibility and potential. Compassion makes me a little uncomfortable if if it's too normative, because I think there are times when we feel rage and aggression and it isn't there. <laughs> and ah. it's it's wonderful when it is, but it's kind of an ideal. It's not it's not permanently reliably available. Yeah. Very I mean, interesting. That may sound mean of me to say. <laughs> no, actually I think it, it, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I think it's probably different when you're dealing with people who are coming to you in a in a therapy type approach versus if I am working with somebody in a business type situation, right? Where I am, I'm probably trying to understand them. And uh, yes, I should probably try to, I love this idea of encouragement because again, if we can encourage others to be curious, then that uh, allows us to kind of both be in that, that worldview. But I think that's probably really interesting. Your book, one of the key things that I, I kind of gleamed, not gleamed from this, but liked about it is you, you describe 12 desires and each of those, uh, you start each chapter kind of with a little bit of your own, uh, insights on this, but then you tell these wonderful, wonderful, um, stories of, of different people and your interactions with them, either in therapy or other, uh, kind of elements. And, 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about those 12 desires? Because they're both positive and negative and some of the implications that they have. And I guess we don't have to talk about all 12, but pick out a few that you find really fascinating for yourself. Sure. So I, I feel like we are talking more and more about desire in general. I might be in an echo chamber saying that because, of course, it's it's a subject that I'm always thinking about. But desire has become this slightly eroticized thing where it's just it's sexual desire for a lot of people. I don't know if you associate desire with with sex or if it means something broader just when you hear the word desire. But I think there's so many different types of desires and having a name for them, having having a sense of permission for things like wanting attention or wanting mm-hmm. to create wanting power. I think it's it's a little bit provocative. We need to be a little bit provocative with ourselves to kind of push possibilities of wanting things that we haven't dared allowed ourselves to think about. So if the subject is just desire to have desire or not have desire, I I think it's incredibly restrictive when it's just libidinal. Mm. You've talked a bit about your your childhood and your past experience, and and that's a theme that comes up a lot in the book with with the stories that you share. And it reminded me of Shankar Vedantam. So he's the host of the Hidden Brain podcast, and he actually has a TED talk where he talks about how we are, you, you know, in our middle age, we're actually not the same person that we were as a child. I mean, physically, our cells are not the same. And again, once we get into old age, we are not the same person, either physically or emotionally. And it it just kind of reminded me of that journey that we're all on. And we are constantly changing. And you say in your book, never stop thinking about what it means to be you. It's a lifelong pursuit. And I think that's a lovely way of describing it. But what are some of the threads that are continuous throughout our life that make us who we are? What stays the same? I think that we, it's a great question, and I kind of want to go the opposite way. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that we, we often want to be consistent, and that can get us into trouble if we think, I wanted this 10 years ago, and I'm supposed to still want it now. And Mm. if we can break change, it's paradoxically part of what anchors our sense of self. So there are threads of continuity. If you look back at your character from however long ago, I think values tend to be fairly stable, but the priorities change and which values matter more, how we kind of make our choices and and put our energy is going to change. And updating and adapting and allowing for growth is an endless struggle for us. And and we want to change. People come to therapy wanting to change and also avoiding change, going back to what's familiar. So mm. I think when it comes to desire, particularly if you fell into a relationship with someone because you were sexually enthralled by that person, and, and that happens easily and often for people, 10 years later, three kids later, your your desires from that relationship will probably be different and 
that's really difficult for us to accept and tolerate. And it, and it can feel almost shameful that mm. we don't feel exactly the way we felt on our wedding day. We don't have the same enthusiasms. We actually want freedom now and we wanted security back then, or we still want security, but we also want adventure. I, I think that we're, we're quite worried about our own inconsistencies and contradictions. And when we, when we take kind of wide angle lens and look at ourselves from a bigger range, then we can allow for those paradoxes. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating that you talk about that idea and is, is some of that expectations that we hold for ourselves are those based upon society's expectations again as you talked about this idea of oh i was really enthralled on my wedding day and and i had all this desire and 10 years later i'm not feeling the same but i'm but it's kind of societally acceptable the norm uh to be to to keep that and and how much of that gets in the way of us being able to to kind of really understand our own desires our own things that we really do want i i think that whatever culture we're in, we are given so many mixed messages about desire. And we we do better if we are at least onto the mixed messages. It's not that we have to kind of get away from society to understand anything clearly, but kind of looking at the at the ways we are messed around, we're told that we should want cake at a birthday party. We're told Hmm. not to seem greedy and to pretend not to be hungry and desperate for cake because it would be unsightly and undesirable. And I think we are socialized to be wanted, to want to be wanted. And part of that means being sightly, being being acceptable and not not being too too needy, too demanding. So we end up going in circles and kind of thinning and and not necessarily knowing that we're not thinking for ourselves. It, it's it's fascinating when we think about that, particularly as we think about our, as you guys were talking about earlier, this, this element of identity, who we are, what what is it that we have um, that is consistent through life and what changes and variety of other things. And in the chapter on understanding, when you're talking with Singh, is that the, the way to pronounce her name, right? Even though it's spelled, it's Singh, right? And, I love that part too. Um, but part of the discussion focuses on on your own identity, and you bring in this quote about yourself, where you say you were described in some place as your child's mother, and although that's part of my identity that I cherish deeply, it's not the entirety of my identity. And I find it interesting that the different identities that we have, that how you know, part of them are driven by societal components, by where the um, what situation we're in, a variety of other things. But how do we reconcile all of those different identities, or or do we do we need to to reconcile reconcile them. Is that something? I think it's really helpful to broaden our our range and allow, again, for contradiction, for mm. shades of gray and, and different parts, different contexts. So it doesn't have to be either or, it can be both and. You, you can be a doctor, you can also be a friend, you can also be incredibly mean, and you can also be incredibly compassionate. And we we are fluid when it comes to that sense of self and our relationships. And 
we're often trying to kind of pin down one definition or or keep it fixed in some way. And I think allowing allowing for for more texture is again just liberating. And mm. we interviewed Dolly Choke recently about her book. Um, it's called A More Just Future, where she's talking about the reckoning with the history of the US and, and and how her upbringing and her knowledge of history of the US is actually different than what the reality is that she's learning as an adult and, and learning to reckon with um, the truth of what history is about. And she talks, she's got a whole chapter, which I really loved, on the paradox mindset and being able to hold two individual truths at the same time. So you can, the example she gives is you can love your country and be uncomfortable with a lot of its history. And I love this idea of holding two truths at the same time. And I think as humans, we really struggle with that. It's it's very uncomfortable for us. And you talk in the book about uh, a paradox and and the paradox mindset. Why why do we struggle so much holding two truths together? And is is that part of your job as a therapist to make us more comfortable with holding those truths at the same time? I think that's really beautifully and concisely said. And I, I like the idea that it is part of my job to help people be more comfortable with holding two truths at the same time or, or many truths at the same mm. time. Mm. I think I think that we like to categorize. It's a way of organizing our understanding, our perception to think it's this, this or that, you know, back to your questions, but ocean or mountains, and I, I yeah. both. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think that we, we want containment and coherence, and it can be confusing to kind of think that something is what it is, but it's also something else, and it's, it's almost like it's conceptually difficult for us to, to tolerate the multiplicity of perspectives. And at the same time, it, it's it's also the fuller picture. So when we allow that we are aggressive and selfish and also incredibly devoted, let's say, for, for Singh, the mother yeah. who describes herself as kind of a lion tamer and, and works for a very egomaniacal architect, architect. She wants to hold on to that sense of being a nice person and and doesn't feel totally nice on the inside and wants to please someone whose ego kind of shoehorns her own covert ego in. And it turns out that she's she's more complicated than than she realized, but also that's okay. That's that's part of her richness. Is that multiplicity of cells, as you say, that multiplicity of of who we are and how we show up in these situations, it it seems like there's an innate kind of human trait that we don't, we, we find some angst with that, that there is something discerning about going, oh, I can be, as you said, I can be kind of aggressive, but I'm also very devoted and I can do all these. And as a, we talked about this, this paradoxal mindset of having these two truths, what is it about us as humans that for many of us, that's a difficult thing to 
to kind of see or to believe or to to want. I mean, I think that's a uh, maybe I'm way off base and let me know if I am. I, I think I think you're right. I think it's easier in some ways to be black and white and not to see the shades of gray, not to tolerate the shades of gray because it is it's simpler and it can even help us survive if if you see a baby deprived of the breast or deprived of the bottle it's and there's this outrage as though mm-hmm. total injustice is happening and i think i think babies illustrate a lot of that binary approach to kind of everything is good everything is bad the mother is good the mother is bad and in out it's it's sophisticated to be able I try not to use the word sophisticated. It sounds judgmental. <laughs> I'm using it anyway. It's sophisticated to be able to consider that the same person who has disappointed you and let you down has also been very tender and wonderful on other occasions. I think, I think it's also a relief to not have to have a final verdict. And mm. kind of let go of the judgmentalism. But I think that judgment comes more easily to us than just exploration. I mean, children are incredibly curious, but they're also taught to then have judgments and to kind of develop a sense of what is right and wrong. Mm. Yeah. So... Tim, who's usually the co-host with Kurt here on the show, always talks uh, about music at the end of the podcast. And uh, we'd be remiss in not kind of filling his shoes to talk a bit about music. And you do have a musical reference in your book that I think Tim would absolutely devour if he were here. But I'll try and do it some justice. But you talk about jazz music as a way of holding space for silence. And I'll quote the book and say, I think of the jazz adage that it's the notes that we don't play that make the music. Holding space and not saying anything just for a moment says more than words. And I think that's a lovely way of bringing in music to the book and the, the appreciation of silence, which I think we we all struggle with just having some silence and holding space. So I, I love that quote. But I wanted to ask you, I wanted to use this as a segue to talk about music. And do you listen to a lot of jazz? Is that what inspired you to write this quote? I do. And I find that it's it's freeing and playful and spontaneous and and also highly disciplined. So I, I like I like the adventurous aspect of it and I I can wish that I could be more like that in a certain way. I think <laughs> it's, it's not that I then think I'm I'm able to kind of have that spontaneity myself, but it, it reminds me of some possibility. And and freshness and adventure and not having a scripted format. I think that when we go into kind of sheeple mode where we're sheeple people. <laughs> we, <laughs> we stop having fresh experiences and and feeling things in a visceral way. And we just are going through the routine, playing the song the same way, not really engaging and discovering. I also think there's something about the notes that are unplayed 
and that mm. space where uh, I mean space is something that we sometimes struggle with around desire because we we want to fill and get rid of and consume and allowing for space can mean so many things and it, it can be incredibly consoling even even thinking about the space for the desires that you haven't acted on like not having to do anything about it so let's say let's say you admit in therapy that you want to have sex with your brother-in-law and it's this fantasy that has consumed you and preoccupied you you do not have to then leave the therapy session and act on it and it might blow up your life if you do and there are plenty of reasons not to but allowing for the space of just expressing it somewhere somewhere safe it's it's kind of the note that isn't played and it's a non-event in your life technically but it's also it's also been allowed in some way emotionally yeah i i love that concept and and actually in the first story that you tell of uh and i can't I'm just drawing a blank on her name um you know in hospice right and and this idea where she was talking this wonderful woman was talking about her life looking back on it and and you had said something i wanted more she she said i wanted more snuggles right and and this like idea of not having those snuggles and i think it's really interesting about that the things that the notes unplayed the silence between those notes the the silence of our lives that really kind of dictates you know a lot of who we are and a lot of what it is that we 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 do I wanted to ask one final question. And so you have 12 desires listed out in the book to love and be loved, desire, understanding, power, attention, freedom, to create, to belong, to win, to connect um, what we shouldn't want and what we should, and then control. And in your experience, is there one or two of those desires that you think people hold within them more than others? In other words, that they have, that they just feel too shamed or too embarrassed or this isn't, I shouldn't feel this way. Is, is there one or two or do, are they all kind of equal in that? Or how, how does that parlay in, in your experience? I love, I love the question. I think that attention is very uncomfortable for us and we accept it in children and we, we act like it's something you should grow out of. By the time you're an adult, and we all want attention throughout life, and it might it might mean different things at different moments, of course. But wanting attention is weirdly awkward to communicate in a direct way. So, I, saying to your spouse, "I want you to pay me more attention," or "I was sad on my birthday because I I wanted attention," or "I was sad at my best friend's wedding because I was jealous of." her attention, I, whatever it is, it's very uncomfortable for us. And, yeah. and yet I don't think that, I don't think it's alien to anyone. <laughs> when you said that, it reminded me of um, the old uh, John Hughes movie, 16 Candles. And, uh, you know, they forget, they forget her birthday, uh, you know, because the her sister's wedding is the next day and, and how that makes her feel. And and it's very poignant. And, and you can think whatever you want of that movie. But the, the idea that it's very poignant that 
yeah, you know, this is supposed to be my day. This is supposed to be there. And and if we don't get, you know, we have expectations about what that attention should look like. And I'm making that about that birthday, but I think we have expectations about what attention is at any point, whether it be, you know, as you said, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, you know, what is expected? Oh my God, you know, my friend hasn't called me, high school friend hasn't called me in, in three months. It's like that, you know, and and, and so I, to your point is there, the, I think part of the book is saying we need to accept that we want that and that those desires are okay. And then it's asking um, those people, right? And maybe ex- telling them, yeah. But it's also, it's having the clarity internally at the very least, mm. because we we get so freaked out by wanting attention that we, we often don't even realize ourselves because it can come at unexpected moments where I, you feel just off or disconnected or a little bit self-pitying and you, you don't want to feel <laughs> sorry for yourself, but I, there's something that is kind of irksome and it, it feels unreasonable to complain or you do complain and you start talking about how you're in the wrong seat at at some party and the food isn't right and you're not you're not happy with something else and again we we kind of wear other costumes rather than being direct even with ourselves to admit oh actually i think i was upset because i i secretly wanted attention Mm. And I think attention is about recognition and the 12 desires I described all have to do with recognition and we want it in, in our own way at every age and stage. Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> I love in the book, the language you use around attention. And I never noticed before that we actually, the, the language you use when we wor- use the word attention is we pay attention or we give attention. And there's a cost to that. There's a there's an element of, you know, it being a cost for the giver. And why is that? Why do we have that language? Or why why does it cost us to give our attention? And does that relate into why we crave it so much? I, I think that it's give and take and it it doesn't have to be mm. something that we lose if we if we give our attention to something we actually get more we feel more when we pay attention so mm. i i actually if it were up to me to rewrite that expression i would start saying i would I, i'm not i'm now gonna ponder what word would be better than pay attention but like hold attention it it doesn't have to come at a cost and actually not paying attention costs much more than paying attention. Yeah. I think wanting what we shouldn't and not wanting what we should is something that plays out for all of us at different moments. And I'm often struck by how often people say they should do something or even in your own self-talk without saying it out loud. You go to a party, something could be frivolous and fun, but you feel like you should go and we all get kind of burdened by the shoulds and being responsible requires cooperating with the shoulds but when it's all of you when when your life is dictated by doing things that you should do not because you want to do them there's this kind of desperation that can 
be really stultifying and depressing in different ways. And I think, I think that allowing for conflict about the rules of desire opens something up because we all want to break the rule of what we should do to some extent. I mean, you, you should do that because you want to be liked, but if you're true to yourself, then you're going to go another way. And I think, I think there's conflict that is in some ways the plot of our life stories. Charlotte, fantastic. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for your brilliant questions. <laughs> Welcome to the Grooving Session, where Mary and I share ideas on what we learned from our conversation with Charlotte, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our asking-for-what-we-want brains. There you go. <laughs> That's it. That's something we really struggle with, isn't it? It's asking. It sounds like something easy, but actually, it's pretty hard to, to say it when you actually uncover the unpeel the layers of the onion and figure out what yes you yes actually want. i know it's it a i think there's there's the hard part of of asking for those types of things as we talked about um we talked about with charlotte but i think what really struck me with our conversation with charlotte as well as the book is that you know it's hard to understand our own desire so how do we ask for what we want if we don't really even know what it is that we want mm. so i think that's a that's a big piece of this mm. and charlotte uh, comes your thoughts charlotte comes from this from the point of a therapist doesn't she like she's she unpacks this with people and i think it's an interesting dynamic to look at it from the other point of view because a lot of people go through therapy but looking at it from the therapist's point of view it was really fascinating in her book you know seeing the other uh, hearing the other point of view of that dynamic and and it did make me think about the role of the therapist and one of the yeah. things that it brought up for me is like thinking of it from a behavioral science point of view like do we have this cognitive dissonance sometimes between what it is we want and and how we act our lives you know we can't always we can't always act on our desires even if we know what they are and does that create this kind of uncomfortable space for us? Is that something that therapists do is, you know, help us get more comfortable with wanting something but not being able to get it? And and that's it's why I brought up the paradox mindset, you know, this kind of uncomfortable feeling of two things being true at the same time. And, and how do we sit with that? But it makes us really icky and uncomfortable. And I, I love this idea of looking at it through a therapist's eyes and thinking through what what they're seeing and how they're having to process things. Mm. And just this idea, too, of like, I can't get too close and yet people are pulling me in and all of these kind of mm -hmm. different aspects that go in with a therapist piece. But this idea that you talk about, about the, you know, this paradoxical mindset and this idea of holding two truths and the cognitive dissonance that that has, I think, is really insightful because I do think that part of a role of a therapist and, you know, I'm not a therapist. I have my PhD in psychology, but it's definitely not in the therapy side of things. So I, I am not an expert to talk about this, but I do think that part of therapy is getting people 
to understand that there might be two truths Mm -hmm. and that living with this and, and uncovering or unpacking the real desires behind some of their behaviors and and to put words to that and to be able to talk about that. So again, I think it flows right into what this book is about, which is this idea of, you know, you know, ask tell me what you want. And and this idea of, you know, first we need to identify what that is and really truly identify. Because oftentimes, and I will tell this from just what we when we ask people about you know, incentives and what they want for rewards and various different pe- things is people will say one thing, mm-hmm. right? It's the say do gap. But we know from the research that their behavior is impacted significantly different by other things. So if you would, you know, if if what they say was actually truly what they desired, you would uh, assume that their behavior would be reflective of that. Mm. But what we find is that it isn't. And I think that's the same thing that some of these stories outline um, that that Charlotte talks about, this idea that, you know, sometimes we are pushing down desire. Because we're told that desire is bad, that societal kind of things, particularly if those desires might be surrounding sex or, you know, something that might be more selfish as opposed to altruistic, that, oh, you shouldn't be thinking that. That shouldn't be a desire that you have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really an interesting aspect of being able to look inside yourself or with a therapist, you know, if you can't figure it out yourself, right, to to be able to understand and to identify what it is that is truly the, something that I desire. Mm. And James James Costello brought this up. You, you mentioned incentives. We talked to James Costello just yeah. a few weeks ago talking about incentives, and he said, you know, they've done research. They ask employees, what do you want as your incentive? Cash. I want cash. You know, that's that's what I want. And then they bring, you know, they roll out the prizes, the the TV, the lawnmower, you know, whatever it is, and people get really excited. So this, the the disconnect between what we say we want and what we actually get excited about, or you know, that we find enthralling, it's it's really hard for us to voice what we want, even if we're talking about it. We don't actually always know. I've I've picked up Dolly Chug's book because that was what talked about paradox of mindset came from. Yeah. yeah. And it's actually not her concept. It's uh, two researchers, Wendy Smith and Maureen Lewis. And the quote from them is, the problem is not the problem. The problem is the way we think about the problem. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And that kind of gets to Charlotte's discussion. You know, how we think about it is actually the crux, not not the issue itself. So I like this. Well, and then I, I... I loved this, I, uh, too, the idea when we started talking about identity, right? Mm-hmm. And we started talking about how we define ourselves. And and exactly as you were just saying here, this the, the crux of the problem isn't necessarily always the problem. It's how we talk about it. How mm-hmm. do we talk about ourselves? How do we mm-hmm. how do we think of ourselves as opposed to how we actually behave? And so then we have those areas of disconnect and this uh, cognitive dissonance that you brought up before. And I loved this idea that Charlotte talked about, that we need to allow for contradiction. Mm-hmm. We need to um, be both and as opposed to fixed. And that piece was something that I thought was really 
quite powerful. And it kind of got me into um, the conversation we had with Robert Livingston, which was a way above my head. Um, <laughs> Tim got into it really, 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 really well. But this idea that, you know, yourself is actually being formed all the time by the by the surroundings and the people that you're interacting with. And this mm-hmm. idea of that being very fluid. And that's, I think, what Charlotte is saying, too, is that we want to believe that we have a fixed self, but in reality, that self is very fluid depending upon the context that we're in. And so we have all these self-schemas, these these people or these visions of who we are, how we talk about it with ourselves based upon, all right, in this situation, this is how I should be. And in this situation, this is how I should be. And I think it's even going one step further than just those uh, schemas that we hold about ourselves in different contexts, but that we need to be fluid with the ability to say, all right, I act like this sometimes in this situation, but sometimes like this and sometimes like this. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that I'm not being true to myself, but that is my true self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about how we define ourselves. Yeah, Um, we need to look at who we are and peel back those layers. Because again, I think it's like the say-do problem with our desires, right? We don't always really take a deep look at who we are. So. mm What else did you find interesting with her conversation, Mary? Well, curiosity. I'm curious about the curiosity. Killed the cat? What? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, she, I pulled out a quote from the, the interview. Curiosity is a life force and it engages us. It galvanizes us. It's inspiring. It gets us to pay attention. And it's also really respectful I've never thought of curiosity as being respectful, but I love that way of framing it. It is an interesting way of thinking about it, right? This mm. idea that if I'm curious, and I think in that respectful way, it's it's this idea, particularly if you're curious about somebody else, if you're having that, that that's a very respectful way mm. of interacting with them that, hey, I want to know more about who you are, what you mean, mm-hmm. what you stand for, what, you know, what are your desires and all of those factors. And as um, you know, I think it goes back as we talked about, uh, it goes back to Kwame Christian and yeah. his compassionate curiosity piece. Such it, it amazes me how many times we keep coming and in multitude of interviews, how many times we come back to compassion and curiosity. I think we need to get Kwame back on and just talk about a whole, whole episode on compassion and curiosity. It is, it is fascinating because I think it's so applicable to so many aspects of life. Like just being compassionate with how we interact with other people and being curious and, and I like that Charlotte says it's respectful, you know, that's showing a sense of, you know, respect yeah. to the other person. Yeah. It, what's also interesting about the way that she talks about curiosity in that quote that you did is she said that it gets us to pay attention. And I think attention mm-hmm. is a really important piece, particularly as we think about this, right? So mm-hmm. paying attention, giving attention, this idea of paying attention to what our real desires are, to who our identity mm-hmm. is. All of that, I think it comes in um, mm. as, a, as a really key piece. And that language is fascinating. She pointed that out in the book, you know, that there's a cost to this. You, we, The verbs we use are paying attention and giving attention. There's a cost to it. <laughs> and, yeah. and I never thought about that with attention. But we talked ages ago, two years ago with Ben Parr, who's written a whole yeah. book on attention. How do you get people's attention? How do you captivate it? How do you keep it? Yeah. 
And he says in his book that attention is the most valuable currency we can obtain. And there again, we are, you know, we're, we're talking about something in terms of value and cost. And, you know, he talks about it as currency. And so it's so fascinating to think about attention yeah. as being, yeah. being something that is almost tied with money. And, yeah. and yet we pay attention to things all the time without being intentional about it. You know, we don't, well, we don't it goes back think. to Niriel, right? Yes, and and yeah. this idea of being distracted and the fact mm-hmm. that we, it's not, it's not distraction as much as it is that we're just, we get sucked in without intent mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be intentional. Uh, yeah. You know, as, as, <laughs> that's always, that's his, uh, that's his big thing. Like actually focus yeah. on how you're spending your time and what you want to yeah. get and, and don't get distracted by just picking up your phone because you want to you want to turn your brain <laughs> off for 10 minutes. Because you know? Yeah, because you're bored and you need something as opposed to dealing with those thoughts that are going back and forth. So, yeah. All right. Well, Mary, I think that probably wraps up this grooving session and this episode. Uh, again, thank you for jumping in and being attentive and being curious <laughs> and, um, you know, having all of these things as you have done a fantastic job uh, while our good friend, Mr. Houlihan, is recovering. And folks, he has recovered. He is doing very well. So, yeah. um yeah, I was uh, I was gonna he, I was gonna add that caveat as well because this episode is <laughs> going out a little bit later than we recorded it just to align with Charlotte's uh, yeah. publication date. So don't be alarmed that Tim is sick again. This is just uh, <laughs> early recording. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, yes, uh, he's, Tim, he's gotten better. He wasn't so. well for a few weeks. He is much better recovering, and so yeah, don't be alarmed. This is just yeah. a, an interim. Yes. So with that, folks, go out. Ask for what it is that you want and make sure you understand what those desires are and use that to go find your groove this week. 